With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this week we have reached our final episode of my ongoing series about people who work in homelessness services. This is a really special interview. I'm really excited about it. I spoke with Stephen Banks, who is the commissioner of New York City's Department of Social Services and also its Department of Homeless Services. You know, his title is a little bit complicated. He's got this dual role. What's important to realize is Banks is the guy in charge of overseeing the programs for New York City's poorest residents, everything from food stamps to the sorts of homeless outreach that we spotlighted in earlier episodes of this series. But what makes him a really, really fascinating character is that before he was in charge of all of this, he was known as a lawyer who sued the city over the inadequacy of its services for the homeless. He spent decades as an attorney at the Legal Aid Society and eventually ran it as the attorney-in-chief. And he was part of these landmark lawsuits that helped establish New York City's right to shelter, which I've talked about in previous episodes, but just to review, is this idea that, you know, if you live in New York State, you have a right to a roof over your head, even if it's a, you know, bed in a temporary shelter somewhere. He was the guy pushing the city through the courts, making changes an activist. And then in the de Blasio administration, he came inside the government. He joined as a commissioner, and he's now trying to make change from the inside. And what I love about this episode is it gives you some perspective from someone who came in as, you know, a rabble rouser, as a guy who tried to, you know, make change to the courts, and now has a perspective of what it takes to actually push policy when you're in charge, when you're at the wheel. I learned a lot. I hope you do too. Enjoy. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Stephen Banks. I'm the commissioner of the New York City Department of Social Services. And the Department of Social Services, what exactly falls under its umbrella? Well, you know, the the Department of Social Services provides uh, help to uh, approximately 3 million New Yorkers every year. And we do so through two agencies that are now integrated, the Human Resources Administration, which provides help with cash assistance, with Medicaid, with food stamps, services for domestic violence survivors, uh, services for adults who need protective services, uh, New Yorkers uh, uh, with HIV, New Yorkers that have uh, uh, disabilities and a, a range of other uh, basic safety net type services, including employment services, legal services, rent arrears payments uh, to prevent eviction, uh, and also the Department of Homeless Services, which is charged with uh, providing shelter as a result of court orders that go back to the 1980s and making sure that people are provided with a roof over their heads and people are on the streets bringing them in from the streets. And we do that with a workforce of uh, nearly 17,000 staff members, 
and the overall annual budget of the Department of Social Services is uh, approximately uh, $12 billion. Most of that is in the form of assistance provided to our clients. So you're the man in charge of the agencies that help New York's most vulnerable, that make sure everyone from HIV patients and domestic abuse victims to the homeless get some sort of help from the city. Yeah, we're the, we provide the safety net when all other safety nets fail. I think in order for our listeners to understand your current job and why it's interesting that you are in your current job, they have to know about your old job. You used to be known as the guy who sued the departments you now run. That that was your main job. I'm getting that about right, correct? <laughs> That's true. Ed Koch once said no one sued him as much as me, but uh, he thought I was a good kid. <laughs> so why were you terrorizing Ed Koch? Why were you suing the city back in the day? I was a legal aid lawyer for 33 years. The last 10 at the Legal Aid Society, I was the attorney in chief responsible for uh, running the organization. And the clients of the Legal Aid Society are clients that have uh, desperate needs, and sometimes those needs would not be met by government, and, uh, and my role and the organization's role is to bring uh, litigation on behalf of individuals and also on behalf of uh, groups of clients in cases that are often known as class actions in order to help uh, individuals in desperate need of help, children, adults uh, who, who needed a helping hand and too often from government uh, got the back of the hand. And you were you were instrumental in the cases that established New York's right to shelter, correct? That's right. And the Coalition of the Homeless is a longstanding client of, of mine and the Legal Aid Societies through uh, many years of that litigation. Tell me a little bit about those cases. How, how did they get started and exactly what did they accomplish in the end? The litigation that the Legal Aid Society brought on behalf of New Yorkers who experienced homelessness, sort of the classic way in which the Legal Aid Society uh, helps uh, people is a group of neighborhood office uh, lawyers. We began to see particularly families of children coming in for help, and we identified a, a problem uh, across the city of, of uh, homeless uh, children and adults who needed assistance and were being denied that assistance, and that led to class action litigation, which eventually led to uh, major court orders. And in uh, the role that I had in the Legal Aid Society had as counsel to the Coalition of the Homeless, we also litigated the cases uh, uh, that uh, involved enforcement of a right to shelter for single adult women and single adult men as well. It's really interesting to me because it seems like the entire infrastructure that New York has created for helping the homeless is really built on these court cases. It's all derived from these court cases that you filed. And it took, in some cases, what, 25 years to, to kind of finally settle them? Is that is that right? Yeah, the Families with Children case, for example, was only settled in 2008 after 25 years of, of hard-fought litigation through multiple mayoral administrations. There were repeated efforts to try to limit the government's role in providing, as I said, a helping hand. But I have to say that you know one of the problems that I always saw through these years of litigation uh, on behalf of families with children and on behalf of single adult uh, men and single adult women 
was that government's response to litigation was to manage to the court orders as opposed to having a comprehensive response to prevent homelessness in the first instance whenever possible, provide decent shelter, and uh, provide rehousing services to connect people to permanent housing, as well as addressing uh, New Yorkers on the, on the streets. So, you know, a missing ingredient through all those years of litigation was a comprehensive plan that uh, resulted in really a very haphazard shelter system being developed that, again, was responsive to court orders, but not uh, attempting to transform the way that the city approached homelessness. I want to make sure I understand that correctly. What it sounds like you're saying is that you'd win a case or get a settlement and the city would respond by trying to do maybe the bare minimum or stick to the black letter of what the judge had ruled and fulfill its obligations that way. But as a result, you got kind of this wacky, not necessarily coherent system that didn't necessarily serve people that well. Absolutely. I think it's, it's important to remember where what the sort of un- underlying legal basis for the right to shelter in uh, New York City is, which is the New York State Constitution. Uh, has a provision in Article 17 of the state constitution that uh, makes uh, providing aid and care to the needy a state and local uh, government responsibility. And it was developed in a constitutional convention that was held in New York State in 1938 against the backdrop of uh, shanty towns uh, in Central Park and along the East River and the Hudson River. If you ever saw the movie Cinderella Man, you'd, you'd be able to relate to what people were going through uh, at that time. And uh, the delegates at the convention said this, this should not uh, happen. Uh, that we have to uh, do more for those in need, and that was the basis of this constitutional provision, which for many years uh, there had been efforts to enforce it, to make it a living, breathing legal provision to, to protect people from harm. And it was eventually when when the courts were confronted with modern mass homelessness in the late 70s, early 80s, that uh, courts began enforcing this constitutional uh, obligation, which resulted in uh, the series of court orders in New York City requiring the provision of shelter to to adults and to, to children. When did you decide that you wanted to go from suing the government to actually being a part of it? Well, you know, when I, I knew the mayor for many years, when he was a, a community activist, when he was a member of the city council, public advocate. You you ran and against him for city council in 2001, right? In 2001. It was the, the, the first term limit year, which the council was changing as a result of the charter change. And uh, to me, it was an opportunity uh, to... Uh, potentially have an impact in a, in, a, in a different way. The mayor and I ran a, and we like to describe it as a high-level debate on the issues. It was a six-candidate race. He came in first, I came in second. But as I always like to say, if I knew I could have become head of the Legal Aid Society, which I eventually did become head of, I went to run for the city council. It's a terrific role to be in the city council, but uh, you know, my heart and soul was with the Legal Aid Society as an institution, and when I got the opportunity to lead it, uh, uh, when we were about a half a second from bankruptcy, 
uh, and to really help save a, a fundamentally uh, an organization which is fundamentally part of the social fabric of the city, uh, that was a tremendous opportunity. But if I knew I could have become head, I, I would have. Uh, I would have focused on that. But I knew the mayor's uh, career. I knew that he knew these issues. He had been the chair of the General Welfare Committee. And after suing four mayors and six governors, I knew he was somebody that understood the needs of our, of our of the clients that I had represented for so many years. And that by becoming the commissioner initially as the commissioner of the Human Resources Administration, that this would be a way to, to meet the needs of, of clients that I cared about very deeply because for the first time, I had, a, I had a mayor who actually understood the challenges of my clients and uh, wanted to do something about it. And frankly, by appointing the head of the Legal Aid Society to be the head of the Human Resources Administration, the mayor was clearly uh, demonstrating that he wanted fundamental change at, at the Human Resources Administration. Two years into the administration, I was, uh, the mayor asked me to conduct a 90-day review of homeless services, which I did uh, during the early part of 2016. And that really was a way to look at how we could serve clients uh, more effectively who were interacting with both the Human Resources Administration and the Department of Homeless Services. In the 90s, when there was a proposal to break the Department of Homeless Services out of uh, the, uh, the Human Resources Administration, uh, there were three people that opposed it. One was uh, uh, Mary Brosnahan on behalf of the Coalition of the Homeless. Another was uh, Charles Ensley on behalf of Local 371, the Workers' Union. And one was me on behalf of the Legal Aid Society. And all of us said that by breaking out the homeless agency from the Human Resources Administration, it would be more difficult for clients to, to navigate uh, these agencies. And that in the end, the agency that had the tools to prevent homelessness and to help uh, rehouse clients with financial assistance, uh, HRA, uh, Human Resources Administration, would be cut off from its role in trying to address homelessness, and that one agency, the Department of Homeless Services, would be left to simply uh, try to uh, provide shelter. And what we saw beginning in 1994 when uh, the Department of Homeless Services was taken out of HRA was uh, in between 1994 and 2014, there was a 115% increase in homelessness. Uh, in the city, most pronounced between 2011 and 2014 when the, the city and the state ended the Advantage Rental Assistance Program. So, you know, by the time we got to 2016 and the mayor asked me to do a 90-day review of homeless services, one of the key reforms uh, was to integrate DHS back with HRA so that clients could get a comprehensive approach to their needs and the city could have a uh, finally now a comprehensive approach to homelessness as opposed to the haphazard approach that, that resulted from uh, managing the court orders for almost four decades. You know, it, it sounds like when you were a lawyer, there was a part of you that was saying, man, if I was if I was running things, I'd be doing it differently. Like, did you used to kind of imagine what you'd be doing if you were in the position you are now? Well, I learned a lot about institutional reform at the Legal Aid Society. I learned it, uh, about it from two different perspectives. One was by litigating class actions against the government, principally, you know, these the two agencies that I now run. I took a lot of depositions of government officials, and I learned a lot about what worked and what didn't work from a management perspective. 
And then when I became head of the Legal Aid Society, when it was, as I said, a half a second away from bankruptcy, you know, there are fundamental reforms that were needed to to make the Legal Aid Society an even better organization. So I had an experience with institutional reform, both as an outsider uh, with the two government agencies that I run, and as well as other government agencies that I brought litigation against uh, at, at uh, multiple levels of government. And then I had direct uh, experience in managing institutional reform at, at the Legal Aid Society. I always like to say that the Legal Aid Society is a great proving ground for to be a manager and to have this job in particular because, uh, you know, the, I managed um, a workforce of about 1,900 people, but 1,100 of those people were lawyers and not just lawyers, but legal aid lawyers who are hired for one, you know, overarching quality, the ability and the, the skill at questioning authority. And when you're running the organization, you are authority. So that certainly <laughs> prepared me for having a job running two agencies. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like running a, a, a newspaper or a website, right? Like you got a bunch of people who, whose entire job it is is to give people an authority flack. So, you know, it's hard to manage them. You know, I think when a lot of people hear the words institutional reform, their instinct is probably to like to be blunt is to tune out right it sounds boring absolutely absolutely but absolutely. i totally understand what you're saying but no but at the same time what you're saying right now about how important it is that these two agencies were separated right the the you know, the social services and the homelessness services and they were they were you know rendered apart back in the day they're separated and how that was making it hard to to help the homeless I think that if people have been listening to these interviews I've been doing, that kind of brings them together. Because one of the things I think I've been learning talking to people who, who work in these services is how integrated everything is, right? Like how it matters that you get your SNAP benefits and your work support and people help get you on Medicaid while you're also looking for housing. That it, it's all part of one big process. You can't have all these different people and services operating independently of each other. Absolutely. And, and sort of looking at it, you know, on the on the human level, I come to this work we're having represented, you know, thousands and thousands of clients over the years. And, uh, you know, I, I came to, to government with a, a client perspective of, of the challenges that clients had uh, interacting with uh, the two agencies that I, I run. And in developing the forms first at HRA and then during the 90-day review of homeless services, I did focus groups with, with clients, focus groups, uh, conversations with clients. That I came to the agency, the HRA originally, with a client's perspective, and I used the uh, direct you know, discussions with clients to help shape the reforms we, we implemented at HRA. But you know, one of the sort of basic ways to look at this for anyone who's who's listening is, so if one agency is responsible for providing rent arrears to prevent evictions, and another agency is responsible for providing shelter, you know, the commissioner and the and the leadership of the agency that's responsible for providing rent arrears doesn't also have the the challenge of every day making sure there's enough shelter. So every individual eviction matters, and so making a determination on the client level to provide a renter's grant is what's going to keep a roof over that person's head, and then for the Department of Homeless Services not have to provide shelter to that individual. So by joining the the two commissioners into one commissioner, namely the commissioner of the Department of Social Services, uh, I think it, it, it enables the agency to see uh, individual client needs in a more comprehensive way and it enables the individual client to experience the services of the agency in a more comprehensive way. 
This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to get back to the policy stuff in a minute. But, um, you know, I, I have a, a more of a, a management question <laughs> for you right now, which is you walk into these agencies on day one that you were, you know, again, you spent a lot of your time challenging and suing and making life difficult for. And how did you assure people who might have been wary about you that you were going to be able to work with them, that you weren't just showing up to clean house? So, you know, the mayor uh, appointed me on a Friday morning and I wanted to come talk to the, the senior staff of the Human Resources Administration. And I should say it was the Human Resources Administration slash Department of Social Services. The, the, that was the, the name of the agency. A little unwieldy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but ultimately you can see why reintegrating HRA and DHS together under the umbrella of the Department of Social Services ma- made sense to do. But on that first day in, in February 2014, I went to the headquarters of the Human Resources Administration, which is literally a block away from the headquarters of the Legal Aid Society, uh, uh, both on Water Street. And, uh, you know, there's some great descriptions by some of my colleagues who, who you know, described when it was announced uh, and they were listening to the announcement of the uh, Human Resources Administration Commissioner who would be the, be the head of the, their agency. There were gasps uh, when, when it was announced that, uh, someone who had sued uh, the agency for so many years on behalf of clients was now going to be the head of the agency. But I looked at the leadership of the organization uh, in the same way that I looked at the leadership of uh, the Legal Aid Society when I became head of an organization that I had grown up in. I went, I was an intern at the Legal Aid Society and became the head of the organization. And one of my favorite things when I was the the head of Legal Aid was addressing the interns uh, every every summer and telling them that one of them could run the organization uh, and that they should make the most of their time as an intern. But my my approach to, to working with the leadership of the Human Resources Administration was to understand what their challenges were and what was standing in the way of what they wanted to accomplish. Because the people that came to the Human Resources Administration uh, wanted to work and serve people. Uh, that was it, the, the lawsuits that I brought all those years were never about the people; they were about the policies. And you know, my very first 
uh, conversation with the leadership was really conveying that to them, that I was interested in, in policy changes and I was interested in working with people in that room who knew how to operate the agency uh, and that I was going to be very much a hands-on manager and I wanted uh, significant policy changes after 20 years of, of policies that I thought resulted in, in not helping clients in the way they, that I wanted them to be helped and the way the mayor wanted them to be helped. And what I actually found was a leadership very, you know, hungry to change 180 degrees, frankly, because they came to serve uh, low-income people, and now uh, the agency would be moving in that direction as opposed to many of the punitive policies of the past, which didn't serve clients well. So I came with an open mind and a desire to build a team of leaders, and I was met with people who were leaders who wanted to make the kind of fundamental changes that I wanted to make. Look, I mean, not to, not to dwell on management. Management is a major part of being able to make institutional reform. When I became head of the Legal Aid Society at that time, the, uh, there were you know a series of direct reports, about 20 direct reports to the Attorney-in-Chief, and I reduced that to a much smaller number because in order to effectively manage, I think you have to have direct contact with your key team of managers on a regular basis to, to drive policy changes and to help support people in driving policy changes. And so when I came to HRA, the commissioner had, again, 20-plus uh, reports, direct reports, and I wanted to organize the agency in a way in which it made much more sense to have less than half that number of uh, direct reports that would organize the agency in a more effective way to deliver services to clients. So rather than having multiple programs reporting directly to the commissioner, I appointed Lisa Fitzpatrick to be the, the head of all the programs. And rather than have multiple sort of services, heads of services be reported to the commissioner, I, I appointed someone named Dan Teets, who I brought into the agency, uh, to be um, the head of special services. And I created a homelessness prevention part of the agency uh, in order to really to highlight even before I had done the 90-day review of homeless services that I felt that HRA could do more to prevent homelessness. And that was the part of the agency where we uh, built up the initial pilot programs to provide legal services to prevent evictions and to provide legal services for, for immigrants in need of legal help. And so just sort of reorganizing the management, that was a key part of changing the direction of the agency. Yeah. So you you walked in and said, it's time to fix this org chart, number one, <laughs> above all. I also say I spent the time, I, I knew I needed time to wrap up my you know leadership of the Legal Aid Society. And I also took myself out of involvement with all litigation as soon as I was appointed. But I spent uh, you know the month of March before my first day on the job, which was April Fool's Day. Uh, I I spent the month of March uh, conducting focus groups with advocates uh, and legal services providers and client groups to really hear what an agenda for, for change would be. And uh, literally, beginning of my first day, we began to implement uh, uh, you know, significant changes. The changing the management was part of it. Changing the policies was the other part of it. But we needed to change the management structure in order to drive the policy changes that people who uh, were outside the agency thought were needed, and frankly, people inside the agency thought were needed. Was going into government like you expected? I mean, were there things that surprised you about it? A friend of mine in in the council said to me, uh, I think after I was in government for about a year, said, you must be so frustrated given the pace of change. 
And I said, actually, things are so much faster as the commissioner than by bringing litigation. You can make change so much more quickly by running the agency than by uh, uh, suing the agency. Well, so let's take an example of change. I think people are are interested in, in how an idea you might have, you know, goes from just an inkling, a thought to actual policy. Let's take attorneys for people in housing court. You know, I, I talked to someone who who does that for my, my first episode of this series. Where did that idea start? Well, you know, this is something actually the mayor and I had spoken about a, a lot when he was the chair of the General Welfare Committee and a council member. Uh, you know, we used to both engage in the in the budget dance, and I used to come and meet with him and, and request uh, uh, funding from the council because it wasn't forthcoming from the administration to be able to prevent tenants from being evicted. And so the importance of providing funding for civil legal services to prevent evictions was something that he was committed to, I was committed to, obviously having run the Legal Aid Society for a long, uh, you know, for 10 years and being, been a legal aid lawyer for 33 years, providing counsel to level the playing field uh, was, you know, critically important. I can remember when I was, uh, you know, beginning legal aid lawyer, you know, that one out of every uh, 100 tenants would have a lawyer and, you know, virtually all the the landlords would have representation. And you could see the difference with a lawyer in, in a housing court case. You know, we used to say that, um, you know, providing a lawyer would, uh, you know, make something that seemed impossible to prevent the loss of your home possible. And, you know, typically tenants were, you know, literally David against Goliath, but a lawyer could beat Goliath on behalf of David on, on many days of the week. So the concept was, was one that was, I was very committed to in coming into government, but the mayor had a deep understanding of this issue and of the importance of, of counsel. But, you know, it's like so many things I found at the Legal Aid Society and, and that we've done once I'm in government, it's important to test programs, put them in place, see what, what how they should could operate most effectively, and then take them to scale. So we came in and, and one of the very first ref- reforms was taking all of the disparate legal services programs that were partially funded in different city agencies and bringing them all under one roof at uh, HRA. So maximize impact for low-income families and individuals by having there be one place where where leadership and management of uh, the legal services programs would be. When I came in, the city had been funding legal services to prevent evictions to the tune of about $6 million. And in that very first year, there was additional funding that we added to the budget in order to increase the availability of legal services in certain key zip codes, where uh, on a parallel level, uh, the Robin Hood Foundation had funded the Legal Aid Society to develop a new a new method of providing services called Housing Help that would be court-based and seek to serve virtually everyone in particular neighborhoods. And so we had models uh, that we began testing um, uh, right in the beginning in 2014. And then there was a significant increase in funding in 2015 to take the initial models further. 
And then by the time we got to 2017, uh, we negotiated an agreement with the council uh, to create the first in the nation uh, right to counsel, universal access to council law, which takes that original $6 million in funding when fully implemented will be a $166 million program. And, you know, what we've found is between 2014, when we first began to, to pilot uh, universal access right to counsel availability in housing court through last year, through 2018, evictions are down about a third in New York City, which means that more than 100,000 people have uh, been able to keep a roof over their heads. And so we went from a world in which one out of every 100 tenants had a lawyer to a world in which now one out of every three uh, tenant has a lawyer. And then the key zip codes that we've targeted implementation, it's now you know more than 60% of the tenants have uh, representation. And when we get to full implementation in 2022, uh, that fiscal year, we will be investing $166 million annually to help 400,000 New Yorkers um, avoid losing their homes. When you have an idea or you have something you want to run by the mayor, I mean, do you sit down with him in a, you know, in a formal meeting with like a slide deck and do a presentation? Or since you know him or have known him for so long, is it you just kind of sit down two chairs and say, hey, how about this? Or let's let's try that. How does that relationship work? Well, first, there's, there's uh, you know, almost constant contact uh, discussion with the mayor about a whole range of topics, but it's the key people in government are, you know, the head of the Office of Management and Budget, originally Dean Fulahan, now Mel Herzog, Dean Fulahan in his role as first deputy mayor, previously uh, Tony Shores, uh, you know, the intergovernmental team, Emma Wolf. These are all key people who care about the clients of the agencies that I run. There are people that I've known for many years, uh, Dean going back to Albany, you know, when I first uh, started representing clients or the interests of clients uh, before the legislature, state legislature. So there are a lot of, there are like-minded people in this administration who care deeply about the clients of, of uh, the agencies that I run. And so therefore, ideas like expanding access to counsel emerge when uh, like-minded people who care about the clients that are involved are looking for ways to improve services. But like, as I described to you, what's most important is to show that it works. And so by implementing a series of pilot programs beginning in 2014, we were in a position in 2017 to take access to counsel, uh, right to counsel to scale. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. What is your day like now? I mean, literally no two days are necessarily the same. I guess if you're interviewing my wife, she would give up all these secrets, so I'll just tell you, you know, my day begins sometime between 5 and 5.30 in the morning looking at uh, what the night before looked like, numbers of people seeking shelter from our agency, what the uh, emergencies over the course of the day may look like. My wife says I shouldn't send emails to staff uh, after midnight, and I should go to bed already, but I have to admit, the exceptions are swallowing up the rule. <laughs> so, <laughs> look, 
you know, this is a these are this is an agency, the Department of Social Services, and it's two constituent parts, HRA and DHS, that are fundamentally about serving people. And so, throughout the day, whether it's in a challenging individual client problem, or a, a implementation of a policy change, or a, or making a policy change itself, they're always grounded in people, and they're people that are both our clients that we serve and our frontline workers. Who are who are the keys uh, to to delivering effective services? And so a lot of the reforms that we've implemented are, are have been implemented with an aim of being positive for clients as well as for staff. You said something very interesting there, though. You said you said whether it's an individual, like a challenging individual client. Do individuals come to your attention? Yes. Like a, a single family will will come to your attention possibly. A single family can come to my attention or a single individual client can come to my attention in, in a range of different ways during my work day. I get emails from people who send me emails directly. I, I had direct emails at the Legal Aid Society about client concerns, and I get direct emails now about client concerns. Is, is that like I have, I'm having trouble you know, getting my, my housing application done or my food stamps aren't coming? What, what kind of emails are you getting directly? I'm going to be evicted. I need help. I found an apartment. I need help uh, moving into it. I'm having a challenge with my food stamps. I need uh, additional services because I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I mean, they're very poignant uh, requests for help, and they come directly to me, and I ask uh, key staff to look into the concerns of the client so we can address them. Similarly, I get emails from individual staff uh, raising concerns about their work life, and I take the same approach there as well. But so one way is individual clients reaching out directly to me. Another way is uh, individual client cases being brought to my attention by key leaders who know that I'm interested in individual clients and struggling through how we might meet someone's needs more effectively, which could lead us to making a policy change that could affect large numbers of clients. Again, it's the same approach that I had at the Legal Aid Society in which we represented individual clients and then could see potentially systemic challenges or systemic problems by uh, understanding an individual's challenge. And we apply the same approach here, which is an individual case might reveal the need for policy change. In addition, I, you know, I participate in town halls. Uh, I participate in focus groups. I talk directly to clients. I go out on outreach with our outreach teams. Uh, I see clients in, in shelters. Uh, I see clients in centers that are run by HRA, uh, whether they're food stamp centers or job centers or the other kinds of centers we operate. So there's a whole range of client interfacing. I meet with leadership. I'm a hands-on manager. Uh, I meet with, with key leaders uh, on a, a regular basis, series of standing meetings, so that people have access to raise concerns. Uh, we, when I first came, I wanted to, to really drive policy changes, and so uh, we had a weekly policy meeting where we were looking at each individual deliverable of the reforms that we made in order to move forward. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example, which maybe, you know, maybe two different examples would, would be helpful here. So, again, on April 1st, 2014, was also was my first day on the job, and it was also the day in which the state budget was passed. And in that state budget, there was a $10 million penalty to New York City, to the Human Resources Administration for unnecessary fair hearings unless the city reduced the numbers of challenges that clients had to how they felt they were being treated in terms of their cases and, and other issues uh, with cash assistance, food stamps, Medicaid, and, and other, other needs. 
And so I saw this challenge of potentially facing a $10 million penalty as an opportunity to look at what kind of reforms we could make in uh, how clients experienced our agency. And so by uh, delineating a series of reforms to reduce unnecessary fair hearings, client challenges before the state to how they're being treated, we've been able to actually reduce the number of hearings by 47%, so nearly uh, a 50% decrease in the numbers of instances in which clients are challenging actions taken by the agency. And when I met with frontline staff, staff said, we know, I go back to my very first day, I wanted to be meeting with frontline staff in all five boroughs where we have offices. My first year, I went to literally every office, but my first day, I didn't want to be behind a desk. I wanted to be out in the field with our staff, talk to them about what my vision was for moving forward with the agency and making the reforms that I knew the mayor wanted to make and that I wanted to make. And, uh, you know, as part of that initiative, I should say, by the way, I, I went to Staten Island, uh, the first office that I, that I visited, uh, which is somewhat ironic because I began my legal aid career in the, in the Staten Island neighborhood office of the, of the Legal Aid Society. Uh, but I went to Staten Island. I made a big speech uh, about you know, all the changes that we needed to make. First question, Commissioner. After suing us for how, for all these years, what qualifies you to be be the head of this agency? Which I thought was a, a great question to get. Uh, and then I also got questions that first day, was like, "We know you're for the clients, but are you for us?" But the yeah. the fair hearing reform in the fair hearing process was part of addressing both client needs and worker workload. And I said to the staff on the very first day, "So let me ask you this: the client is receiving assistance in January." we cut off their benefits effective in February. They bring a fair hearing, they win the hearing, and then in March or April, you have to reopen the case or restore the benefits. So you're touching that case multiple times for hearings that we could have avoided in the first place if we had taken a different approach to whether or not that case should be closed or those benefits should be reduced. And by looking at the challenges of clients and the uh, challenges of staff on the front line, uh, what I have been communicating is by addressing uh, client needs, we can also address worker workload. And so that was one of the the key pieces of constructing ways to change the the approach to, to hearings in that way. Similarly, you know, there used to be a rule in which if you violated a work rule, you would be essentially subjected to a durational public assistance challenge. So even if you came back and said, hey, I want to comply with that rule, you would still be, you know, in effect sentenced to have your benefits reduced for a set period of time. That was a state law requirement. Well, we went to Albany and we worked with the, the state legislature and eliminated durational sanctions. So if the client wanted to have their case you know, reopened by reengaging with work. We have now our workers have the authority to do that. Uh, so those are the kinds of uh, things that I think, uh, you know, illustrate making positive changes for both workers and staff. So what you're saying is uh, taking a slightly less punitive approach with these benefits kind of reduces bureaucracy too. Uh, absolutely. Sort of, you know, on the question of durational sanctions, we have, an, we have an historically low number of people who are subjected to sanctions now, about 1%. But on the other hand, we have a whole series of engagement. Isn't it better to try to engage clients in our work programs than to simply impose a direct, durational sanction? And I think that that's what we've been able to show. And a lot of people said, oh, by the way, when we implement all these reforms, it will result in a dramatic increase in the caseload. I think if you look at the press at the time, people said, oh, it's going to go to the bad old days of, you know, a million people were 
receiving public benefits. Actually, I said all along that the annual number of people receiving our cash assistance would stay roughly flat. What would change is this sort of monthly churning by cutting down on unnecessary case closings and unnecessary sanctions. And I think what we're doing in, in the food stamp area sort of exemplifies what our approach has been, which is, you know, you and I do our banking online, right? We don't go, we don't go to a bank uh, to do our basic banking. And our clients fundamentally are the same as you and I in the sense that why require someone to come in an office if you can give access to do things online? So we received a series of waivers from the federal government, from the state, to essentially create an online portal, Access HRA, to give people the ability to do phone interviews for eligibility and recertification, and to allow people to submit documents online, uh, including their application, and to submit documents literally from a smartphone. And so what we found is, you know, like 97% of clients are able to do uh, their interviews on, on the telephone, and, uh, you know, almost 90% of, uh, of clients use the online submission process to, for their application. And that has cut down the foot traffic in our food stamp offices by uh, more than 50%, thereby dramatically improving both the client experience and our staff experience. And we have plans to replicate that approach uh, for cash assistance, which will be, again, a lasting change for clients and for our staff. But each one of these institutional reforms requires tremendous management by our, our key leaders and requires staying on task in order to make these things a reality for both staff and clients. It sounds like you're kind of you're all over the place during the day. You're in meetings, you're in, you know, staff visits, you're at town halls. I mean, how much of your day is is scheduled? Do you have any just downtime to think? And do you have any control over your day? Or is it all just sort of there laid out for you? Well, you know, our clients have emergency needs. So my schedule frequently reflects the emergency uh, issues that we that we have to address on, on behalf of our clients. Um Look, I carve out some time in every day, typically not between nine and five, to be able to plan what are the key tasks that need to get done in that day and what are the key tasks that need to get done the next day and what are the things that uh, are takeaways from the activities that have been involved during the day. I am blessed with a great senior staff. We've built a leadership team here that is very much focused on the reforms that we're implementing and the needs of clients. And so uh, this is not a one-person show. This is a team effort, and we've put together a team that I think has really made tremendous changes for clients. Uh, But we know there's more to do. You know, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the reality of making major reforms the kinds of reforms that people have wanted for you know 20 years when I first came in, uh, first to, to HRA and then to DHS in 2016, that on any day of the week, any client could walk into any one of our offices, any one of our shelters, and not receive the full benefit of the reforms. You know, one of, one of my frustration always is we have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of clients who have benefited from the reforms that we've put in place, and we can talk through, you know, what I mean by that in a minute. But still, on any given day of the week, we have clients that might not have realized the full benefit of the reforms, and that's what's driving us to continue to make the changes that we know our clients need. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, 
host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. So you've faced criticism. People talk about how the city's homelessness problem is intractable, how, you know, the, the numbers of street homeless individuals are in the, the numbers in the shelters aren't going down enough. You know, you've had, you know, a congressman from Queens show up at your doorfront and call for you to be fired <laughs> because of where you were citing shelters. I think he may have called you the, you know, the, the worst director of homelessness ever, which you know, that's I think he was I, I'm not sure how many people would agree, but. What is it like to be on the receiving end of these criticisms now after being the one who was lobbying them before? So let me also try to, for those who are listening, try to set some of the the factual record straight, which I think is helpful. And then let me respond to what I think is a very good question you're asking me. Uh, Let me go back to the beginning. I'm a legal aid lawyer. I've, I've learned you know, the, the, the hard lessons that it, what it takes to be a legal aid lawyer, which is sometimes to have everyone against you except your client. Uh, and that ultimately, if you stay client-focused and client-centric, that's the most important way to be. Uh, so that's the attitude I came into government. I had very thick skin uh, for being at the legal aid society for 33 years, including the last 10 running the place. Remembering, that, as I said, that at the legal aid society, people are hired to question authority, and when you're the head, you are authority. So modern mass homelessness is really almost a 40-year phenomenon. And as you know, we said when we were talking before, there was a 115% increase in homelessness between 1994 and 2014. And you know, that increase in homelessness came against a uh, rent going up uh, nearly 19% and income going up less than 5% and the loss of about 16% of, of the rent-regulated apartments, 150,000 units. So you know, the deep affordability uh, crisis that is built up over many years, and that's a, a driver of homelessness. But you know, as, as we, we said, for all of those years, the government really didn't have an underlying uh, you know, vision of how to address homelessness. I remember uh, when you know, we were seeking contempt against officials in the Dinkins administration that uh, one day an executive deputy commissioner of HRA by the name of Jeff Carpels, he's passed away, he was a really dedicated public servant. Uh, I asked him under cross-examination in court what it would take to comply with the court orders that the government was, uh, was violating. He said, really, it requires a combination of prevention, decent shelter, and rehousing services to help people move out of shelter. It's really that simple. And that simple, comprehensive approach was missing for many years in managing the corridors. When I was asked to conduct the 90-day review in homeless, uh, of homeless services, and then we announced the Turning the Tide Plan 2017, we've been fundamentally transforming the approach to homelessness literally in the last three years against a background of a 40-year problem. But we laid out a program that was really built on four pillars, and let's just look at how, where we are now 
a couple of years later. So the first pillar was prevent homelessness whenever possible, as, as Jeff Carpel said so many years ago in the early 90s. And by investing in legal services and providing rent arrears payments now to a you know, more than a quarter of a million uh, instances in, in New York City, we've been able to drive down evictions by about a third, while, whereas evictions are going up all around the country. So on that first, you know, pillar of, of how are we doing, driving down evictions by, by about a third is a significant indicator that the reforms are taking hold there. In terms of rehousing, an important element that Jeff Carpel's talked about, you know, 133,000 people uh, have uh, been rehoused by the Department of Social Services using every social service tool that we have. The vast majority of those 133,000 men, women, and children are people we moved out of shelter. Uh, a third uh, pillar of that turning the tide plan that sort of had its roots in the 90-day review in 2016, and, and uh, we announced the, the plan in 2017. The third pillar was uh, transforming the city's approach to shelter. So instead of this haphazard approach wherever the city could open shelters, it would, we said we're going to close and get out of 360 uh, substandard uh, uh, shelters and open a smaller number of 90 borough-based shelters to give people an opportunity to be provided with shelter closest to the anchors of their lives, like jobs, schools for children, health care, houses of worship, family and friends, reasoning that by getting people closest as possible to those anchors of life, people would be able to regain stability as, close, as quickly as possible, move back into, into the community. And where, where are we with that? Well, in less than three years, we've gotten out of more than 200 substandard sites, uh, well on the way to hitting the 360 sites. Uh, and we have cited 60 shelters out of the 90, 30 of which are already up and running. Uh, and the fourth pillar, addressing street homelessness, bringing people off the streets, uh, more than 2,450 people have been brought off the streets since 2016 who've remained off the streets. That's life-changing for, for 2,450 plus people. Uh, and as we just announced today, we're going to take that progress further by opening uh, 1,000 more safe haven beds and 1,000 more permanent housing uh, apartments uh, through the Department of Social Services tools. And as a result of all this, we've been able to hold the shelter census flat for the last two years for the first time in, in a decade, breaking that trajectory of growth. And we're confident that we're going to begin to uh, see reductions in the shelter census. And with the new approach to bringing people off the streets that's resulted in 2,450 plus people coming in and remaining off the streets, with the new tools we announced today, we will be able to eliminate and long-term uh, street homelessness in New York City. No city has tried to do that. So these are challenges. These are serious problems that have built up for many, many years. Uh, but we do see signs of progress. But as I said, look, my concern is always so many uh, people have benefited from their forms. You know, more than 100,000 people have remained in, in their homes because of the prevention initiatives, 133,000 people that were securing permanent housing because of the social services, permanent housing tools, 2,450 well, people it's, off it, it the like, these, are, these are life-changing, but my challenge is always there are more people we need to help. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like what you're saying is you've got a 40-year problem, and you're being asked to fix it in five years. And you just want to shout back, look what we're doing, be patient. 
<laughs> we're fixing the system is kind of, you know, the number the number of homeless people in the shelters might have been hovering at 60,000 for a few years, but it's not going up anymore. Progress takes some time. That's that's how that's what I'm hearing as you explain all of that. Well, I appreciate your your reaction, but I want to just caution you on one thing. I don't see my role as sh- shutting back. I see my role as delivering for the clients that the agency is to serve. Yeah. And so if you look at those four pillars, you can see how we've been able to deliver. Now, as to the council member who protested at my house, uh, yeah, council member Ehrlich, correct? Yeah, yeah, as to the council Queens. member and others who have protested at my house about shelter sightings. Look, for the people who are, who are going to be able to be sheltered closer to the anchors of their lives, that's the life-changing process that we're in. And if the price I have to pay is that a council member and others are going to protest in front of my house, my obligation is to meet the needs of our clients. I should also say just factually, one of the reasons why he said I should be fired is because I had no plan to prevent homelessness. I, I, would, I would just refer everyone to the facts here, which is New York City is leading the nation in innovative approaches to prevent homelessness, which is the reason why evictions are up all across the country and down by more than a third in New York City. So uh, having actually innovative uh, programs and a vision on preventing homelessness is not a fair criticism to say that that's lacking. Let's talk about shelter siting. This is a controversial issue all across the country. It's, it's Everyone says they want the homeless to be housed or to have shelter, and no one wants that shelter in their neighborhood. How much resistance have you found to building new improved shelters from local neighborhood groups? I mean, I, I, I say this with all, you know, with all humility. I think a lot of the focus is on the disputes, and there's not enough focus on the communities that are welcoming their neighbors back into their community. You know, we've cited 60 shelters in less than less than three years. 30 of them are already up and operating. More will be coming on, online out of the ones that have been cited, and we'll be citing more. But I think, to me, what has been uh, gratifying is the fundamental compassion of New Yorkers welcome their neighbors in. They've formed support. Uh, networks for uh, the families and individuals in our shelters. There's been a focus on the disputes, but what we see every day are New Yorkers being compassionate and and wanting to help us help families and children and, and adults who need help. Still, uh, still, you do have people protesting at your house every once in a while. I mean, do do you get used to being yelled at? Publicly, it's hard enough for me to get used to being yelled at on Twitter for things I write. <laughs> it's like I can only imagine what it's like having someone actually show up at your door to shout at you. So, how have you adjusted to that? Well, I look at it a different way. I, I testify before the council frequently on how our agency is delivering service to, to clients. I've known members of the council for many years, both in prior roles I've had at the Legal Aid Society, prior roles they've had, including their roles on the council. And I find the hearings uh, to be very respectful on the policies. I listen to what suggestions are. I see whether or not we can make changes. And I provide information. Uh, So I actually experience the public debate as constructive and respectful, with the obvious exceptions when people want to come to uh, my house and frequently uh, voice criticisms that aren't actually informed by the facts. But at the end of the day, I've got great neighbors. They believe uh, in in giving people a helping hand. I've got a shelter a couple of blocks from my house. It's been there for many years. And I'm I'm blessed with good neighbors in the same way I've been blessed with great colleagues at uh, the agencies that that I run. Uh, Commissioner, 
thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, happy to talk to you. I have to just, I'm sure I will upset my communications team by saying, you know, you didn't ask me w- one question that I thought you might. Oh, yeah? Let's I hear it. You, Let's... I thought you were going to ask me, do I have any regrets about anything? <laughs> I sort of have asked it, but let's hear it. Do you have any regrets? I have one regret, actually. You know, elimination of the Advantage Rental Assistance Program was so fundamental in accelerating homelessness. As I said, a 14,000 person increase, literally almost a 40% increase in the Department of Homeless Services shelter census in three years alone, 2011, 2012, 2013. Yeah. And then a trajectory that this administration inherited of, uh, that really, you know, help drive increases before we put in place the, the reforms during the 90-day review and during the turn of the tide that's now resulted in holding it flat for the first time in uh, two years in a row for the first time in a decade and now beginning to move forward to reducing the census finally. But, you know, we brought a case challenging the city's elimination of the Advantage Rental Assistance Program, and we had injunctions all the way up to the Court of Appeals to keep the program going to prevent people from losing their homes and entering into the shelter system. And uh, I lost the appeal four to three, and I find it uh, you know, haunting uh, that if only I had been more articulate on that one day and had convinced one more judge to prevent the city from ending the Advantage Program, the trajectory of homelessness in the city may have, may have been different. Yeah, I, wa- I want to ask um, at the risk of taking up more of your time, I do want to ask one other question. This uh, is where the vein. communications team is going to shoot me because you were ending this interview and I went on and introduced the new topic. I know. Which is, They're all taking hemlock is it, right now. Yeah. <laughs> Isaac, don't do it, man. Um, what, what is something you think you've gotten wrong? What would you say is your personal biggest screw up as, as the head of an agency? You know, I think there, there's certainly the challenge of the pace of change. Sometimes requires course corrections. I am, you know, a very impatient person in terms of wanting to see change happen more quickly for both our clients and our staff. And sometimes that requires a course correction. So I would never want to give up being impatient for change, but I'm always chastened whether I was at legal aid or uh, since I've been in government that uh, you have to be willing to constantly monitor how things are implemented to make sure that in the urgency of addressing client and staff needs, that the program is operating uh, the way you want it to operate. Is there a specific program that you have in mind that you maybe went a little too far too fast on? I, I think that you know you could look at uh, how we rolled out universal access to counsel, for example. You know, we had to make sure that there was enough capacity in the legal services community to be able to expand as quickly as we wanted to expand. And I know I pushed for expansion, you know, very aggressively at the beginning, uh, maybe too aggressively in terms of the capacity of, of the community to hire as lawyers as quickly as we wanted that to happen. And now I think certainly in partnership with the provider community, we're very focused on how to bring as many lawyers as possible on at their agencies so that we can fulfill uh, this critical mission of expanding right to counsel to all uh, low-income tenants in the city. You wanted more lawyers than were available. The clients need them. The organizations wanted to hire them, but turning on a dime and and changing uh, the availability of uh, lawyers in 2014, 2015, when we were moving very quickly 
to expand pilots in order to get to the position we could we got to eventually in 2017 to implement the the right to counsel. I, I certainly was uh, anyone who was in meetings with me would say I was very impatient in 2014, 2015, because I saw the urgency of the moment to get to where we got to in 2017 to actually be in a place to be the first in the nation to take on the program to provide universal access to counsel. And I wanted to move as quickly as possible. I wanted to do it before 2017. But at the end of the day, we got to where we get to. And uh, I think when we look back on the things we've done here, having a, uh, a right to counsel, universal access to counsel, will be one of the most game-changing initiatives that we put in place. All right. For real this time, Commissioner. <laughs> I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. Anytime. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. Moreover, I hope you enjoyed the series. I learned a ton recording these interviews, and I hope you enjoyed listening to them, and I hope it maybe changed your perspective a little bit either on you know what homelessness is, who it affects, and the work that goes into helping those who fall into it, even temporarily. As always, Working is produced by Jessamyn Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music and to Melissa Kaplan for recording me in the booth down in Washington, D.C., where I have recently moved from New York. I'm Jordan Weissman. Please join me next week for more Working. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.